Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. I'm Lisa and I am your host this week. And I am joined by my trusty co-hosts, Christina. Hi, Christina. And Erica. Hello, Erica. And we are coming to you, you know, as we usually are from Dublin. Very exciting. And we have an appropriate theme today. We are talking about mead and all the things that kind of surround it, mead adjacent things, beer adjacent things. And for those of you who follow us on Twitter, or if you're fans of Boak and Bailey for all their wonderful beer writing, you may have seen out there in the world a little bit about uh, Christina's homebrew experiment. Uh, so we're going to touch on homebrew a little bit today, uh, but I think that'll be fun. But we're also going to, you know, as per usual, talk a little bit about history, a little bit about how this stuff actually comes together. But before we do that, I want to say we are on all the socials at Beer Ladies Pod except on Facebook where we're Beer Ladies Podcast. But you guys can you guys can search. You're smart. We have smart listeners. We believe in you. So certainly continue to like, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So before we dive into mead, what is it? We're going to do a little bit what you're drinking. So Erica, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so I've got a Whiplash Covered in Dust West Coast IPA. And I'm just showing the camera some of the artwork. Uh, kind of looks like someone that's vacuuming up various bright colors. Uh, it's got Golden Promise, Crystal Malt, Columbus, Centennial, Amarillo, and Simcoe at 6.8%. Ooh, lovely. Good beer. I do really enjoy that one. And Christina, what have you got? Uh, okay, so if you're watching on YouTube, ignore the glass. It looks dirty. It's not. It had a big, um, initially like a bigger head, and I put nutmeg on the top, and then it went down. And so, yeah, it, it's, it, it looks like a mess. It's not. So it's a braggy. Um, I made it with a commercial beer. Um, it's pretty simple to do, actually, just honey and then um, your spices. And then I wanted it a little more spicy, so I put some more spices on top of it, a little bit of nutmeg, because I'm really more of a nutmeg than a cloves girl. So I just got a little creative, um, but yeah, it's a braggot. It's a lot of fun. I like making these. Um, yeah, I need to get back in the habit of my sort of beer, beer historical recipe experiments, but I've been swamped at the moment, but hopefully when I'm back from this, this jaunt over the, the water here in a, in a little bit, I will be back to my regular scheduled programming in April, but yes, this is a braggot. 
Ooh, lovely. So I, I have, uh, I'll say I have also tried to go for a braggot. Um, we'll see whether or not this was successful. I've mixed this up um, before uh, we started. This is some mead we've been making at home. It is mead that's been infused with strawberry, but it's not super, uh, not super fruity, I don't think. But I have then uh, mixed it up with some Rye River Hop Drops Citra Extra Pale Ale. Mm. So this may or may not be successful. Uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. But I also tried to uh, kind of add a little bit of a of a tart note as well. So I also threw in a little bit of lingonberry syrup. I'm not sure if it's going to mm. end up being too sweet. Um, I feel like it probably needs one more thing, like maybe some mint or something, which I didn't have. But I'm going to give it a quick sip. I'll say it's interesting. I do think this is a good beer, though, to. To, to mix with uh, to, to mix with a mead and sort of see where that goes. But having said that, you know, we've got to get back to basics. So we'll go to mead. What is it? So I don't know, Erica, do you want to dive in since you're the proper professional brewer? Oh, sure. Well, uh, I've never made mead. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but I was introduced to it um, when I turned 21 and was attending the Minnesota Renaissance Festival every year. Uh. And I feel like Renaissance fairs and Renaissance festivals are a very common place for people to first encounter mead. Yeah, sure. at least in the North America. And I gifted myself with a really fancy um, goblet from one of the pottery shops. And oh, wonderful. A tradition for my family. So if I'm home and it's Ren Fair time, we go and do that. And there would be um, your typical basic honey wine, but then they would have, mm -hmm. like you said, infusions of different fruits and such. Um, a lot of the resources that I came across online talked about um, basically the home brewing side as opposed mm -hmm. to commercial. Um, and all of them stress that making mead can be quite quick and easy. Um, so you need water and honey, and honey is your fermentable sugar source. Um, there are a few offshoots that might include fruit, spices, grains, and hops, but those have different names. Um, and the honey tastes different based on where the bees are coming from and what they've eaten. So that's really the key. Um, like your honey will taste different if your bee has eaten heather or orange blossom or, or different types of, you know, flowers and pollen. Um, and you do need to have yeast uh, to add to this mixture in the bucket and make sure to follow all of the steps for cleaning and sterilizing. Um, that's super important. Um, and a lot of these uh, shops, you can get just a starter kit um, and it, you could get like um, a demijohn as well. That's the other option. Uh, and just make sure that the, the airlock is fit um, to your vessel, whatever your vessel may be. And that ensures that your CO2 is going out, but no contaminants are going in. And you kind of wait um, for the first mm -hmm. fermentation, uh, which could take two to four weeks. And this is dependent on the temperature and the recipe. And then when this bubbling stops, um, you can transfer the mead to a second bucket and you're leaving that sediment behind. And then you can store it in a dark place for about eight weeks and 
of course, you're looking at it and smelling it and tasting it along the way. And once you're happy, uh, you can bottle it and label it, which is a really fun part. And yeah, like I, I would say I became very interested in mead itself after we did a uh, Ladies Craft Beer Society of Ireland virtual tour with Kinsale Mead. Yes. And my husband participated and we said it was one of the coolest remote things we did during the pandemic. Um, just learning about uh, four of their samples and tasting them along the way and realizing that there is a history of this drink in Ireland and uh, I, I would be very curious to learn more from the two of you and especially about Braggots because that's something that um, I hadn't really heard so much about um, before Christina's project. Yeah. Oh, really good. Really good segue. In fact, I'll, I'll try it for, for those on the YouTube. I've got a Conceal Mead shirt today. It's got a Viking longship on it. It is uh, it, it is an utter delight. So even though I'm not drinking one of theirs today, I actually do have two of their bottles in front of me that I'm looking at because they are, are beautiful. And I also have one from Loch Gill uh, as well. So I think I would say those are your, your commercial examples that you want to go for. Uh, others may be available, but others may not also quite be mead. So we, we, we may address that a little bit, or we may be nice and not say anything about some of those others. But I think perfect segue over to a little bit about the history and why it is super appropriate that we should be making mead here in Ireland. So Christina, oh, over to you. Oh, bragging history or mead history. Oh my goodness. We'll do it all. <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll do a little bit then I'll, and I'll, I'll shoot it back over to you. Lisa, yeah. I know that you know a lot about this because you're making it. Um, <laughs> but of, yeah, yeah. of course, of course, mead and ale were, were very much a part of medieval life and mead being could potentially be a high status beverage. We have something called like the mead hall or the mead circuit. So this was definitely something that was around and mead in different cultures could be very high status. There's all, a lot of different folklore about how mead came to be. And I won't get too into that because that's kind of its own um, episode in and of itself. But yeah, mead could be quite a high status beverage. And we know that honey was really important in medieval Ireland. There were entire sections of the laws devoted to keeping bees and how to keep bees and and rules about um, how to handle the bees and what happens if the bees go, you know, away and how to keep, you know, lots and lots of detailed laws about beekeeping. So honey was a very important part of, of life, um, especially for, you know, the wealthier classes. Um, and yeah, so Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about the meads that you're making or your, your family? Well, they are, th this is sort of our second go around with, with mead. We did our, our very first one and this is now, let's see, my older kid is almost 17. So he would have been a baby. So this is about 15, 16 years ago that we had our first sort of go around with mead and we were unexpectedly successful. So there's that kind of thing where you, you, you know, it just happens to turn out right. And you're like, this is easy. And then you do it again. You're like, this was not easy, but the initial one um, was one where we made kind of a very basic mead, but then we also put in uh, sort of infused it again with Szechuan peppercorns. And that was really, really nice. It cut through that, that sort of um, the mouthfeel. And it also gave a little bit of that, uh, that sort of tingly, uh, sensation you get from really, really spicy things. It didn't impart a ton of flavor. We had to kind of amp that up a little bit with, I want to say it was black pepper. So if anyone's actually had the, the recent Hope Black Pepper Saison, which is really, really lovely, 
it actually was really similar in how that came out sort of mouthfeel wise and just that little bit of tingly, that little bit of kind of peppery goodness, really kind of hard to explain. But it was one of those things where, again, we just got a lot of honey and put it in a bucket and threw in some yeast and then put it in a dark place for a while. And we're like, oh, job done. All all good. But then, you know, you try to reproduce it. We actually entered it in the, the AHA, uh, whatever the local competition was. And it went up to, I think, nationals and got like a, a fairly high placing. But again, not many people were making mead 15 years ago. So some of it could have been not many people entered. But, you know, we have our ribbon. It's very pretty. We'll take it. But I think it's 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 one of those things where it you know it is kind of deceptively simple and there's so many things you can do with it in terms of what you can infuse but I think it's also important to note that it can go really wrong it can turn out or or at least I'll say I'll say not to my taste it can turn out really really sweet even kind of viscous and I would say most of those meads that people have the bad association with again are not actually really mead they tend to be wine that people have dumped honey in as a kind of flavoring so it's like a regular grape wine, but uh, again, name, naming no names, but there are some around that are that are like that. Um, not the ones we've mentioned before; those are good. But I know my first introduction to to me, you know, was you know certainly the the Renfair kind of situation. But I had a professor in in grad school, and archaeology grad school is already extra enough. People get people get weird, but we would uh, end up in uh, sort of seminars with the professor, and she would dole out little bits of mead. And it was like cough syrup. It was just really thick and gross. And that was my association with it for, for years and years was, ugh. but then I you know, started making it and it turned out well, and then it didn't turn out well, it turned out more like this kind of gross version, but here we are now making, uh, making more. And we've got a couple of different infusions going. I wouldn't say if any of ours are particularly historical in nature yet, but that's something we'd like to dig into a little bit more and try to see if they're we could make something that does seem like a sort of historic air quotes uh, mead, which again, simple in the making, but you know, how do you try to get that profile? We don't really have a great idea of what that would look like. So, mm. but yeah, I don't know. Although, although it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I would o- open the floor up to both of you. Like, do, do you have other associations with mead? Cause I think of like Beowulf and they're at the mead hall and you know, I, so you have this very sort of, you know, Anglo-Saxon and Norse culture ideas of, of mead. And I think here in Ireland, you get much more of the Viking element, but like, are there other big sort of things people latch onto and think, oh yes, this culture, mead. I'm not sure because it is something you find other places, but I feel like that's what you hear about. I was at a medieval restaurant in Regensburg in Germany. Hmm. And we had like a very ancient meal and that was served with mead. And that kind of brings back some memories for me thinking about this place that had kind of lots of stone and it was a bit dark and, you know, I could imagine people wearing some kind of fur and yeah, like just sometimes middle ages are just old, old timey kind of ships and yeah. 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 And I, I think we have like the, the, the idea of like drinking horns and, and things like that, you know, some yeah. of which are sort of on the right track and others are wildly not so. <laughs> but yeah, Christina, you, you, you've got looks there. You well, I just, think of, I just think of Michael Einwright's The Lady with the Mead Cup, this whole association with like mm. women serving like ale and mead as a way to like establish their husband's authority within this like mead hall. So what I mean by that is 
a woman would serve her husband and address him as the leader of this, sometimes with lots of trailings about his, you know, his accomplishments, his accolades, or, you know, hey, king of this, welcome to the hall. And so then they would drink. And then Einreit has argued, and then everyone that drinks after is sort of agreeing to this person's authority within mm. the hall and their political position and their kind of subordinates to this person. This is Einreit's argument. And I agree with Einreit um, in this regard. I think it's a really interesting role for women in the literary context. And I think it probably yeah. isn't just literary. I think you could make an argument that considering how frequently it exists, that it's possible that this was something that authors were seeing also in their lifetime and then they were mimicking this in their writing of course you could also argue it's a literary trope but i i would venture more to it's possible that this was something that they saw in life um whether this was a more standardized or exaggerated version perhaps in in the literary tales but maybe it, it, it resembled something that happened in lived reality at some point, some kind of a ritual, um, given how ritualistic we know um, sort of things are. But we have something like that now, right? Like when we do toasting, right? When Absolutely. someone offers a toast at a wedding, you all wait to drink your toast until the person's done their speech. And it's, you know, considered rude to, you know, drink your drink before the person's done their speech. So, you know, and when you're drinking, you're acknowledging the toast and agreeing with the toast and agreeing with the position. So it's not that far fetched that this is something that happened. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would agree. And I, and I think, you know, so we certainly have plenty of archaeological evidence for people, you know, making and consuming mead and, and things associated with it. And of course, those those famous mead halls. And, and I have a, a sort of terrible stroke funny story about one is we were at uh, Lera in Denmark. Um, and this is years ago now, which is where they think was the historic uh, sort of inspiration for Hararot in Beowulf, or one of the two possible sites. But while we were there, we were wandering around talking about Seamus Heaney's uh, translation of Beowulf and the word came over that he had died. So we we killed Seamus Heaney by going and buying cheap mead uh, at, you know, the place where the original Hararot might have been. But it's it's a fantastic place. It's sort of this big open air archaeology park. They have, so they have the initial, like the original site there. And then they build these amazing reconstructions. So if you want to see a Bronze Age Barrow, but a new one, or if you want to see a full blown mead hall, but a new one, it's there. It's, it's amazing. Well worth a visit if you happen to be in that part of Denmark. Uh, easy to get to on the bus, train, all that good stuff. But uh, it's they really do kind of bring that kind of thing to, to life. But I, I think, too, it's important, you know, to, to think that these would have been on, you know, not just on this massive scale, but would have been just very much kind of a household activity, too. As we know, we like to talk about women are off making beer. They're off making wine. They're off, you know, potentially wine. They're off, you know, making mead. This is also just household activity. So you go someplace like Iceland, you go to some of those reconstructions of sort of not the big long houses, but essentially sort of the the huts, if you like, sort of the sod houses, you can still see where people would have, you know, had their mead, where they would have been fermenting things. And it's it's fascinating that we have good evidence for what they were making, Um, you know, even kind of uh, what the bees were consuming. So it's all it's all there. But uh, have to make sure you're paying someone to do all your, you know, your pollen analysis and all those good things. So lots to discuss there, but it's, I think it's really, really interesting. And uh, yeah, I would love to go back. I don't think I'm going to get to go on this, this trip to Denmark that I may be on when this episode drops, but uh, (laughs) 
we'll see. But with with that said, I, I think I, I, I know there's great interest online and Christina in your experiments. I would love to kind of hear how it started off and where it's gotten to and how, how you uh, sort of think it's gone and what, what comes next. Yeah, so I guess we'll talk a little bit about what braggots are first, because I think hmm. there's at least a misconception yeah. about what they were possibly in like the historical record. That's I think now mean, commercially, yeah. a lot of time they're now kind of an idea of like mead mixed with ale. But at least in the sources that I found for medieval England, hmm. um, high medieval England and late medieval England, and actually into the early modern period and actually further on. It's actually a back sweetened ale. So it's ale back sweetened hmm. with honey and spices. And then oh, interesting. Um, you add yeast to it and spices, and then you kind of, some of them say to let it re-ferment. Some of them don't even say add yeast. So I'll get into some different recipes and, and the like. But from a historical perspective, from the recipes that I have found, yeah. now feel free to send me recipes that are different from this. Um, <laughs> historically, from the recipes I found, it is an ale already made, then um, back-sweetened, re-fermented, possibly um with honey and spices so that's what we're working with that's that's the ale that we're making um so yeah i i don't know i've been doing this thing where i'm doing historical beer cooking so like i'm trying to find recipes from the medieval period uh early modern period up until like about 100 years ago and just making drinks and food and stuff that required ale or beer i just bit of fun i like to cook I'm not particularly like amazing at it, but it's fun to remake medieval recipes and early modern recipes. So the the thing on my big thing on my list for 2022 is like, I'm going to make a braggot like this. I'm going to I'm going to do this because it's just so interesting to me. I was like, yeah. how how is this going to taste? You know, after I had tried an experiment making some other sort of like mold beer drinks over around mm. Christmas or whatever. So anyway. I started digging into these braggots and there's like lots of different recipes that you can find, but even up to Thomas Wright's, and I'm going to read out this title because it's a dictionary <laughs> that uses about half the words in the dictionary in the title. Um, dictionary of obsolete and provincial English containing words from the English writers previous to the 19th century, which are no longer in use or are not used in the same sense and words which are now used only in the provincial dialects by Thomas there Wright. There you go. Thank you, Thomas. Well, Mm-hmm. Love it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they uh, common to have very long titles, but anyway, yeah. I love a long title. So he defined braggot here as a beverage formerly esteemed in Wales in the West of England. And he included two recipes in his definition. Um, the first was from an unnamed 14th century manuscript, um, which. Yeah, it's unnamed. So we're going to go to the ones that I can find that I could actually dig out. And then the second he included, which is. Um, from Thomas Coggins, Coggins, uh, 1584, the haven of health, chiefly gathered for the comfort of students and consequently of all those that have a care for their health. So yeah, another long title. So in this one, um, to make a braggot, you take four or three or four gallons of good ale or more as you please, two days or three after it's cleansed, and you put it into a pot by itself, um, then draw forth a pottle thereof, and put to it a quart of good English honey and set them over a, the fire in a vessel and let them boil fair and softly and always as any froth ariseth, skim it away. So you're skimming any froth away and so clarify it. And when it is well clarified, take it off the fire and let it cool. Put thereto a penny of pepper, a penny worth, 
pennyworthy. Uh, cloves, mace, ginger, nutmeg, cinnamon of each two pennyworth, beaten to a powder, stir them well together and set them over the fire to boil again a while. Then being milk warm, which is specific to, you know, milk warm, put it to the rest and stir all together and let it stand two or three days. Put barm upon it and drink it at your pleasure. So this one's interesting because you're you're putting the that's barm on and then you're drinking. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, huh. But yeah, like the big things that I found were some say to add barm. And so barm, if you're not familiar in the Middle English compendium or even in the early modern period, it's the frother scum that comes in the top of fermenting beer. If you don't have that and you're making this yourself, just brewer's yeast is fine. Whatever you have handy is good. And so the interesting thing is, of course, Coggins recipe is calling for beer and not ale mm. so that's or no he's calling for ale here but he has other okay. recipes that call for beer um which is interesting because he talks a bit about he defines ale and beer in his book which is really really important for us beer historians because he says yeah. you know that beer is with hops and ale does not have hops mm -hmm. so at least in this point at least in his mind ale doesn't have hops um, which I think is really, really interesting in any event. So then there's other sources. It's basically the same thing. So then I'm going to go to the recipe that I chose and I'm going to explain why I chose this one. So I chose this one because I decided to make a commercial example. So I used a commercial beer, like a beer that you can just pick up. And then I also use, I also had brewed a medieval small ale specifically mm. for making a bracket out of. So I did both. And so I wanted to pick a recipe that was kind of closer to probably around the date that my um, small ale recipe was at least medieval. So I picked this recipe and it's all, this is all on my blog. So we'll link that exactly what recipe I picked. Um, yeah. And so it's basically like the same thing. Uh, one of the things I would I would mention is it says to that the ale should be stale. So you should okay. let it, should make the ale or let it, let it be stale. So that the beer that I made to do my commercials examples, I made sure that I used beer that had gone past its best before date. But yeah, so the recipe I used, um, pepper and cloves were the spices for this. And then you add it to honey and you kind of wait. Now, I, the thing that I will mention is the amount of, honey that you're adding is not a lot per gallon. It's really mm. not a lot. Um, so I didn't, I was a little like, is this really going to do that much? Um, I think it ends up being like only like a third of a, like a third of a cup Interesting. of honey per gallon. Um, or is it? No, that's, that's, I think it's a third of a cup of the ale that you then mix with the honey. Okay. Let me get to that when I get that bound to how I did this. I'm confusing myself and I'm going to confuse you. So let me wait until I get this. But anyway, it's a, it's not a lot of honey that you're adding to this. So it's, it's you're kind of like, I was kind of like, how much is this going to do? Is this going to do much of anything? Well, it must do something because there are so many of these recipes, right? So obviously right. this is something that people drank. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is this recipe also wanted you to add aqua ardente to it um which is a kind of which is one rabbit hole to fall down about <laughs> it's a distilled spirit so you could just add whiskey okay um kind of whatever you have on hand if you want you might want to think about what might go well with the herbs that you're using the spices that you're using 
Um, yeah, so I'm not going to get too far into the spices and because there's there's a whole discussion about spices and beer, but that's another it's another <laughs> podcast episode. So I followed the recipe pretty much exactly, but I, um, okay, so yes, 79 milliliters of ale to two and two thirds tablespoon of honey per gallon. So basically hmm. what you do out of your ale, you take 79 milliliters and then you cook that with the two and two thirds of honey and your spices. And then you add that back into your ale. And then you, then you leave that to sit for however many days on your calculations. Anyway, it's all in my blog, which probably will be a little more scientific than me trying to like read it um, here. But anyway, so I will tell you what my results were, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, so my medieval small ale, there's no hops or anything in it. So of course, um, really, we're talking really, really malty. Like that's really what okay. we're going with. So that's what you found with the braggot, except that um, I used Vienna malt to make my small ale, which already has honey sweet notes. And then the honey mm. just kind of bolstered it. Now, the thing is here is that the honey didn't really re-ferment, right? So that might not have been the case. I think that's something to like be considerate about because it would, it really depends on what kind of yeast you're having and that kind of stuff. Cause the yeast could have fermented, it, you know, it could have, but it didn't change at all so that you got a lot of the honey flavor whereas like with a mead you're not necessarily going to get straight up honey right it sort of depends as you know lisa you were saying about like how sweet it is and how that's and you know if you're only using that amount of honey in a gallon like it, anyway i found that it, it wasn't sweet but i could kind of see it like pushing up a bit of the the vienna malt honeyness but it was hmm. mostly just subtle hints from the cloves and pepper um and then like the bready crusty notes that you just get from from the malt. And anyway, um, I liked it. I thought it was nice. I thought, I mean, like I could understand when people drank it. It was good. It was definitely really good. And but again, like it didn't properly re-ferment, but then you're only supposed to leave it for a couple of days. Now some of them do stay longer. So right. I think that might be the trick. But um, yeah. The, it was just basically like a back sweetened ale. I thought it was interesting. Um, and yeah. then it just kind of, would you and add that more honey next time? Would I add more honey? Yeah, so that's kind of what I did today. So I did this little experiment here, although I didn't let it sit for however many days. So I was just trying to see how <laughs> I just wanted to see, you know, what the honey flavor would would happen if you didn't let it sit. That's I guess I didn't really make a braggot. I made like a lazy girl's braggot. Um, my, um <laughs> that's a great yeah. name for a cocktail though. Lazy girl's braggot. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um yeah. And, and honestly, there's a big difference uh, from the honey flavor from this one. And when I let it sit, like when I let it sit, mm. it really melded with the flavors. It kind of gave a creamier mouthfeel, even that little tiny bit. Um, yeah. So it did make a bit of a difference. And honestly, with the commercial beer, I thought it was really good as well. Like with the hops in the commercial beer, the one that I picked, it wasn't, um, it was hop flavor, but not hot bitterness. So I, I picked that one on purpose because I didn't want to go with a really bitter beer and I thought it was nice of course everything had mellowed out because it was you know past its best before date well past its best before date I need to like check my dates more I just got lucky on that one um but yeah the hints of spice and the stuff it didn't affect the mouthfeel really too much on that was maybe slightly creamier but not very much but the pepper and the cloves played well with the the sort of 
citrusy flavors of the hops. So I thought it went really nicely. It probably would also work really well with like um, any kind of like English hopped herbal beers, that kind of thing, or, you know, anything with citrusy. You didn't, I wouldn't want anything like really like papaya or mango-y that would mm. compete, I think, but things like a mild even would probably be nice. Like things that would either are very low hop bitterness or if they're hopped, something that's like more herbal um, or even spicy. You could probably have spicy, but then it's just going to make it even more spicy, but you know, you might want that. So yeah, it was a fun project now that I've done my soliloquy on the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's great. And uh, I'll say too, that the one sort of historic recipe book we are using, or I'll say, we are thinking about using uh, in our sort of mead experimentation at home is uh, there's this book called Welcome Mead, 105 Mead Recipes from 17th and 18th century receipt manuscripts at the Welcome Library. So Welcome Library in London, uh, Laura Angotti is the uh, author compiler of this book, and she has just gone through and found all the mead recipes that are kicking around the Welcome Library. And they are really, really interesting because they do have that where they, they all tend to have that thing you, you get in sort of historic recipes where it assumes you already know what's happening with about half of it. And then it's like, oh, but put these things in. And you're like, but but what happened over here in the first half? But that said, it's really interesting to look at that and sort of look at the kinds of spices because they, they do tend to be really highly spiced that they are using in these recipes. Now, is that just because these are the ones that people felt they had to write down because they were special or different for some reason? Some of them are certainly kind of air quoting medicinal, um, but, you know, di different purposes, but, you know, again, very early modern. So not certainly anything we're looking at from a kind of medieval perspective, but a, a little bit more of a, a sort of, uh, you know, it's much more of like what we would think of as a recipe and that there, there's an ingredients list, not necessarily telling you, you know, you know, sort of the how, but the what is, is very much there. And, and I think Erica, it'd be really interesting to get your perspective on it. And again, the kind of that trying to make a sweeter versus a drier mead. It's, it's, I guess we have more control now over the fermentation, but I, I wonder what, what would that look like from, from your perspective? Is it about the honey? Is it about the yeast kind of combination or? I'm assuming it would be a combination, but everything that I read um, said that the honey is just so, so important. So I feel like right. whatever those bees are eating, like that kind of determines what the mead is going to taste like. Um, like I, I do tend to like, more of the sweet ones, but mm -hmm. uh, I've talked to people that said like almost every mead they try is sickly sweet. And I, <laughs> I, I don't know, is it maybe like coming around again? Like, is it a fad or a fashion or, cause it certainly wasn't so popular, let's say five or 10 years ago, you know? So yeah, a lot of room yeah, for experimentation there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I can definitely think of other meads I have tried that are not sweet or that tend to be much more of a dry kind of whiny sort of mm -hmm. character and I'm thinking of some of the ones you get from uh from California or uh you know or sort of the southwest even but there are also some really interesting ones made in um in South Africa um and again you know this is something that can be made anywhere in the world and uh, you know I think we do sort of suffer from we hear about again kind of the the Viking ones the you know sort of the the north ones but it is something made other places and it would be really interesting to look at what that looks like in those contexts. Do they tend to be sweeter? Do they tend to be drier? Or does it really just depend on, you know, like anywhere else? Is it, is it just who's drinking that particular one and their preferences? Or if we're looking at a historic one, is that sort of 
what that yeast did. I, I mean, I think that's an interesting question too, is, you know, if, if we're just throwing kind of barm on top of something and hoping for the best, and it, what it are we getting? Yeah. Wouldn't really be something that was well-documented or even understood at the time likely. And how could we ever reproduce that? So it could be down to climate or, you know, what was in the air at that time. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, the, and the plants that the bees were, you know, were, you know, feasting on could have been very different. So there are, it doesn't always work out well, right? Like like anyone who's home brewing knows this is, this is a science, but there's a little bit of a, you know, it's an art as well. Like you you kind of have to, you can do all the cleaning in the world, but sometimes you might miss something and there's all kinds of things that might, especially when you're talking about, you know, a society that that doesn't have germ theory and so doesn't particularly... (laughs) But I mean, they are saying barm or berm. And so they do have this idea that this this is what is is an important part of what we're doing. So they might not have understood necessarily like the ins and outs of everything. But th- there's definitely enough evidence to to suggest that they have. They, they, I mean, they're not pe- medieval people were not stupid either. You know, yeah, like yeah. they knew it so was like, an ingredient. Yeah. Yeah. So like it's they're definitely talking about barm. Like so they they have an idea of of this stuff right? They have, they have some concept of it. And I mean, that goes on well into, into, you know, the 19th century, you see barn brewers in Dublin, for example. So, you know, th- this farm is an important part of, an important part of cooking and brewing and, and all this, this other thing. So looking at the recipes is, is really, really interesting. Um, I, I like recreating these recipes just for the fun of it. And, um, I would say to Lisa, you mentioned about the spices. I yeah. would say the spices are pretty consistent in what I've seen for um, ales and beer sort of mm. mold recipes. So yeah. um, I've made a pasta and it calls for a similar recipe. I've made just straight up malt beer and it's called for a similar recipe. What were some of the other ones I made? Lamb's wool, um, similar mm, kind of yeah. spices. So these warming spices are pretty consistently used um so far that I found in these sorts of recipes which is really interesting um also you know we have a discussion about spices and colonialism and expense and and that kind of stuff um but yeah they're pretty consistent um these kinds of especially cloves and nutmeg (laughs) um Cloves, nutmeg, ginger, and mace, I see pretty consistently in a lot of these recipes. Um, pepper, cinnamon, these kinds of things. I'm looking at a recipe that just says all of these things. Um, but yeah. yeah, they're pretty, I mean, they're pretty common. Um, and and they 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 complement the the beverage well. So like I can see why, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, oh, yeah. And do you um, think, is there room for a vegan version of this that would maybe use something like agave instead of honey? Or did you come across that in your, your readings? Or does that exist? N- no, I don't That's think that would be the idea. same thing at all. <laughs> like it would, it would, it would be like, it would be it would not be a, a braggot, right? It would not right. be a mead. It would be something else. And that something else is okay. That's great. Mm-hmm. You know, someone make that. That's an interesting experiment. But it wouldn't be honey and honey has such a unique flavor that you just really can't mimic that with something else. Now, the idea, you can totally recreate that with, with other things. And I think that's actually really interesting and something that someone 
it probably has already done or should do. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a braggart or a mead because those are pretty specific things. Yeah. 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 Um, but it would be cool to make like a uh, an ale back sweetened with agave using the thing, using the the recipe or whatever, you know, if, you know, sugar-free sweetener, whatever you need to do, I think it would be like a really fun experiment, actually. Maybe I'll try that. And I, I've had a Berliner Weiss with agave, which was gorgeous, but again, very different, you know, from a technical perspective, but flavor-wise, just beautiful, highly recommend, yeah. like a perfect summer beverage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds gorgeous. I just think the flavor would be that much different that you really very different. couldn't call yeah. it the same thing. But an in, in, in interesting and equally probably delicious thing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think just to, to circle back to the flavor, too, I mean, I think, you know, we really underestimate and, and maybe this is just me, but I feel like we, the collective, you know, beer Twitter or whatever sort of beer nerd, uh, we underestimate like how much weird stuff is in historic beer and historic mead. Like as much as, and I am as guilty of it as anyone else to say, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why do we have to put everything in my milkshake IPA or, you know, whatever. But historically people were putting in whatever they had around and we're like, let's try it. Let's see what happens. And I think you see it, especially with mead where they do really, you know, the recipes are all very clear. You're putting all of these other flavors in. Otherwise it's just kind of, I don't know, plain, I, I guess, to some you know, just to, to, to one extent or another, but, you know, historically it's, it's a, you know, we're throwing the kitchen sink in for, you know, we didn't have a kitchen sink, but whatever we had, we're putting it in. And I think it's a really interesting, you know, thing we don't think about. We think of like, you know, very modern, you know, clean loggers, but you know, that's so recent, relatively speaking. And, so. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I came across something that's kind of like a tea bag of spices <laughs> that they would put in, in a braggot or wine or whatever they want to put it in. And like, let the spices steep and then they could use it. They could, um, how do I say this? The, the woman who, she was Liza Picard, Picard wrote Chaucer's People, Everyday Life in Medieval England. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how they could use this as a way to make the drink to more detailed specifications. So they could put them in and then take them out and then put it back in if they wanted more. And then they could be, re- the bag could be reused over and over. So I thought um, Picard's, arguments on that was really really interesting and I was like oh this makes so much sense now and you can kind of see that in some of the braggot recipes because they're saying to take the sediment and put it in a bag and then put the bag Mm. in the braggot so that's what they're doing they're keeping the spices in there now my spices are so finely ground that like I couldn't scoop them up and stick them in a bag and then but I thought wow that's actually really smart that's a really Mm. smart thing to do and you could get really technical about okay you know we're going to make this. And I know that if it's at three days, that's the kind of beer that, you know, so-and-so likes, but if I make it at four days, that's the, you know, that's this one and this combination with this, and we can use this bag with this bag and this, it's really cool. Like, I think, I just think that opens up a lot of really interesting possibilities and it makes me want to make a bag. Exactly. <laughs> you could get like a muslin fabric and then get maybe cinnamon sticks and whole nutmegs and things that are, you know, thicker, um, and try that for another one of your experiments. It yeah. just seems like it just seems interesting. Now they do say that they were, these were ground and then put into the bag, but they're probably not as finely milled uh, as yeah. we're getting oh, yeah. now. Um, but they say it was made into a powder. But anyway, they put this in the bag. I don't know. I think that this is really cool. Yeah. Um, so I would like to 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 try her her argument and see how it works. Um, 
probably just have to make another medieval ale. But yeah. yeah. If it so works, cool. uh, you know, business opportunity, sell these on Etsy. There you go. Christina <laughs> and I. Ale steeping bag. <laughs> yeah. A few weeks ago, we spoke to uh, Melissa and Michelle from the Women's International Beer Summit. And yeah. they have at least one speaker who's going to be presenting on meads and braggots and, you know, similar drinks. So I think if anyone's uh, going to attend uh, next month to definitely stay tuned because um, it is it is a hot topic, you know? Absolutely. And probably- yeah, and, and you're right. There's so many more than there used to be. So, and it's funny because I, I mean, these things are all cyclical, of course, but I mean, you know, if we circle back to Ireland, you know, mead essentially disappeared. Um, when would we say like maybe early 20th century, even late 19th? I don't know if we have a, I don't know, Christina, do we have a good date for when it kind of completely falls out of favor? I don't know. I think you're kind of fine, but I, yeah, I wouldn't know specifically really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and not then off the top now of my it's head back. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, again, we, we have Kinsale Mead um, and then there's the one that they're doing at Lock Gill and, I think it's, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, it's such a different thing than now. It's such a technically precise thing now. It's, it's not like uh, what we're talking about, where we're talking about like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this sort of homebrew thing? And I think, you know, there's room for both. And that's, that's, I think what's, what's really exciting. But I, I think too, it's uh, like anything with, with, you know, experimental archaeology or sort of, you know, sort of historical experiments, you just have to get out and do it. And mm-hmm. a lot of these things, you know, whether it's primary sources or archaeological materials, unless you have someone who's tried these things and understands what they're doing, you might not know what you're looking at. So there's probably all kinds of old site reports in the 19th and early 20th centuries that may speak to this, but they're all labeled as like, and then there was an oven. And you're like, well, <laughs> maybe... No, yeah. if I remember correctly, Christina, did you say there's an artifact in the archaeology museum here in Dublin that's an old mead drinking chalice? Does that sound- there's, there's there's just a lot of drinking vessels. There's there's a drinking horn, there's a bunch of meters, there's glasses, there's all kinds of drinking paraphernalia in the National Museum of Archaeology. Um, which is one of my favorite places to go to see Irish medieval history. Um, they have like a massive brewing pan, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And then when I was at their, um, what was it? The Glendalock exhibit, the new Glendalock exhibit. Oh, they yeah. had um, grains, like malt and stuff. It's re- there, there's a lot of good beer history. And I, and I, and I talk about that in my book, but there's, they have a lot of really interesting stuff there to, to see. That's, that's probably related to, to beer, ale and mead history in mm-hmm. Ireland. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. really really cool stuff there mm. yeah absolutely and probably even more out at you know little regional museums that people you know don't even realize what's there so always a yeah. big shout out to little regional museums that have cool stuff and people should visit them absolutely. all good and that the one thing I will say about like making these experiments and stuff is like mine are always like historical ish like I don't want you to get the idea that like, I'm completely recreating them yeah to yeah. the standards because I obviously don't have like you know I'm not starting a fire and you know <laughs> so it's it's something like it's fun to just do you know at home and like enjoy the process and realize that you know you're gonna get close. But, you know, unless you have the like the full working, even if you have the full working equipment, you're not you might not even have the same yeast strains. Sure. These sorts of things. You just have to get comfortable with it being like close enough for fun. Like the wording of some of the recipes you spoke about, it's like you have to kind of decipher that 
because it's not how we talk anymore you know like yeah or you had to look up some of those <laughs> yeah you have to go through the middle english competitive which is really really helpful i've linked all of that in my um, and and it helps with words because I mean a lot of these have different definitions and yeah. the other thing to keep in mind is um, there's not standardized spelling so a lot of sure. these things are spelled one way and then another way and then another way and another way and it's all the same word so do keep that in mind um, and then you know some authors just go rogue and make up their own spelling so yeah it's 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 <laughs> yeah. just it's just but it's just it's fun like it's just fun to do yeah. which is a bit of fun. Um, I, I just enjoy doing them. I, you know, I don't, you know, obsess or get upset with myself if it's not like perfect, because this is, this is a fun thing for me to do. Just the um, food and, and, and beer are two of my favorite things. You know, when I go to a, a travel, um, I visit another country. It's one of the first things that, you know, try the food, try the beer, try this kind of stuff. So it's a way for me as a historian to try to connect with the past that I'm writing about, um, you know, early medieval England, medieval England, Ireland, these sorts of things. And I have in my article a list of all different kinds. You can you get your hands on all kinds of recipes, meads and honeys and meats and honeys, meads and brackets and all sorts of things. So, you know, I why not try it at home, especially because you can make a bracket pretty easily with a commercial beer. And then you're done and like you let it sit for three to four days or 14 days, depending on who's making it. And off you go. I mean, it's just a bit of fun, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been fun for me to read your blog and kind of follow along. And I'm really impressed with what you're doing and always <laughs> the updates. Um, now, Lisa, I believe you have uh, tickets to Fidelity Festival. In I July. do indeed. And I am very much looking forward to that. And did you know there's going to be Superstition Meadery there from Arizona? Oh, I did not know they are coming. I've had some of their stuff. So that is exciting. Uh, so it's kind of nice um, at a beer festival to have some alternatives and yeah. We'll take some photos of our tastings and report back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, I didn't know they were there. That's going to be really, really fun. And just to be exciting to get to a, a festival again, but that's yeah. great to see people coming from all over. And like you say, to have that, that variety. So you feel like, oh, I can maybe take a break from all of my like double IPAs to have something <laughs> a bit different, but yeah. uh, oh, how cool. Yeah. Palette cleanser. I love mm -hmm. that idea. How cool. And, and I think, yeah, I think the other thing to think about too, just in, in, in you know, as we're talking about, you know, the, the recipes and sort of the, the historical piece before we kind of start to wrap up is, I, I think, again, it speaks to, um, you know, we have all of these, these amazing primary sources for what mostly, not entirely, but what mostly women were up to in kind of the early modern period, especially because, these are these things that don't get talked about a lot. These are these kind of household activities, these recipes, these things that might have been shared, you know, sort of, uh, you know, between families, things like that. So I think it's another way to sort of say, hey, women are doing all this really interesting stuff in this period that maybe doesn't get the the sort of, uh, you know, the spotlight, things like that. But it's hugely important. And, and some of this is, you know, basically chemistry. And some of it is really just Ooh, what's this cool new flavor we've discovered? So I think again, it's it's a really interesting thing, and you know, could could use a little more a uh, little more light on it. So I, I think I know we we like to say, well, women are doing really cool things, even if it's just in air quotes in this sort of household space. <laughs> but we should be looking at it more, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff to unpack there. I think so. Um, just another 
shout out for those women. I have two things on that. Firstly, I have yes. an article coming out that I'm writing about that and then maybe a talk and it's also part of my book. So I am talking about that because I think, I think the whole alewives witches myth really gets it wrong because they proponents of that say that women were pushed out of brewing which presumes that the only valuable brewing was money-making brewing right women were brewing at home and so it kind of again it's devaluing work within the household and also negates the fact that women were brewing with their husbands and then it might just be that their husbands were taking like the credit for like name wise but they might have been you know the brewing end of the operation for and you know in the early modern period there's there's a lot of different things about it and I'm gonna I'm gonna write about that but I think it it all kind of again we're devaluing women's work in the home and forgetting that you know just because something doesn't make money necessarily doesn't mean it's not valuable um but yeah, so I think there's like lots of layers to that, mm-hmm. but I think it's an important thing that we need to remember, like just because something isn't making money, I know capitalism tells you that you have to make <laughs> money, but like just because right. something isn't making money isn't, doesn't mean it's not valuable. So all, you know, all work is work and it's all, you know, you you couldn't do things without them doing those things, right? So, right. you know, brewing beer so that you had beer in your household so that way you didn't have to buy it you know so it didn't have to be purchased so you know these kinds of things are really important and I think we need to remember that yeah you're here (laughs) excellent so I think with that we'll we'll start to wrap up so thank you again to Erica and Christina and thank you again lovely listeners again we are at beer ladies pod on most of the socials or beer ladies podcast You can also buy us a pint if you go to buy me a coffee. We are out there, but we are really excited to keep bringing you all this good content and we will see you again soon. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 